0: Hey Rachel. Uh, so I just finished listening to the Saeed Jones episode. One of the moments that really stood out to me it was just this teeny little moment when Saeed it says, you're really good at this. I can I can see the vision. I can see what, what you're doing. And I thought, yeah, she is really good at this. And I loved that more than in a lot of episodes recently, you were really putting yourself into this one. And I really loved that Saeed was just like into it, you know, like that he was taking like everything you were putting down and really forming a connection with you in this way. And on top of that, I finished reading the second essay, the confessional essay in Poetics of Wrongness. I know I'm going to want to talk to you about this book. So I guess I'm inviting you to be on Keep the Channel Open again if you're open to it, to talk about that book. And I was thinking to myself, I cannot imagine that I could talk about myself to the extent that I do when we are talking to each other and not have people just be completely exasperated by it. That's mostly because I just cannot imagine anybody wanting to listen to a man talk about himself like a straight, this man talking about himself and his feelings i don't know like reading the poets of wrongness i keep thinking about like how do these dynamics work in you know for me in my own life in my writing practice such as it is in my podcasting practice and i can't come to any conclusions just yet but i know i want to talk to you about it that was a ramble and now i have to go back to work so anyway i hope you're having a good day bye Hello.
1: Hi. Okay. Hi. Let me. Let me. Let me. I, I'm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're both saying the same thing at the same time. Can you hear Ginsburg panting right behind me? I cannot. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for trusting me. Here's why I am hoping that this conversation can sort of bookend the uh, the audio for the second lecture, which is the one that's kind of about confessional poetry. Mm -hmm. So I started Commonplace for a lot of reasons. And I've made this joke before on the podcast. But one of the reasons was, (laughs) like, having the analytics that showed me how many people were downloading the episodes made me feel like I was an interesting person. Um, and and like people were listening to me. (laughs) Like, I don't think that I made commonplace as a way of like speaking to Josh. I think it was more about needing to feel that, that people were interested in me, the listeners of the podcast, but also the guest. like the guest was willing to sit and, and spend two hours talking to me. Now, I have these relationships that I made through the podcast. You and I have this wild friendship where we leave each other these very long voice messages. Well, when I was getting divorced about the divorce and now about dating and about parenting and about the podcast and about writing and my book and the things that one might say to one's spouse. Um, or to a really Mm -hmm. close friend. There are so many things that the confessional lecture is about. It's about why I was looking at these so-called confessional poets who did this thing of putting what is supposed to remain private into the public sphere and how they were perceived by that. At the end of my conversation with Moses, about the Poetics of Wrongness um, Mm. lecture, he asked me if the lectures were gendered and if the lectures were like more male than maybe my poem. Mm. And definitely the role of lecturer I consider to be a very male kind of role. One of the things that was, confusing to me was about was how to enter this male space and and assume what I felt like was a very sort of male kind of power, but also subvert that power and hierarchy and the lecture form and make it more like a conversation, which which is the is the place that I feel most at home and that I feel is most similar to what I want my poems to feel like. Hmm. But what I'm also aware of is that I do think that if I have an intended audience member, definitely of the lectures and probably mostly of my poems, it's a male person. Oh,
0: interesting.
1: And even though I think, women are probably more likely to see themselves in my work and connect to the work, but I don't, I, so I'm, and I might be writing for women, but I'm not writing to women. And you and I have talked so much about gender in our conversations. It's like so weird to call them conversations, but they are conversations. <laughs> they're
0: just,
1: <laughs> they're just formally.
0: Asynchronous conversations.
1: Unusual. They're, exactly. They're asynchronous. <laughs> asynchronous conversations and poems, if they are conversations, are also asynchronous. Um, So we're podcast, podcast, exactly. Um, So, you know, you're not my replacement husband, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but you do fill this role.
0: One of the things I've been thinking about a lot uh, with, with respect to, well, the whole collection, but particularly the, the second essay is this question of what are we risking? Because risk mm-hmm. is such a central part of confessional poetry. And you make a big distinction both in this essay and in some of the, the essays that you, the shorter ones that you added as appendices yep. about the difference between confessional poetry and sort of autobiographicalistic poetry. And that's yep. the biggest the biggest difference that you identify is this quality of risk and asking, what are we risking? You are part of, and this lecture is part of a bigger conversation. I think that, that people have been having over the past, you know, maybe 10 ish years or probably longer than that, but this is how long I've been paying attention. What, what what is the difference between sentiment and sentimentality? Why are these, why is this genre considered now to be a feminized genre? Why do we still have this stigma attached to it? I mean, on some level, right? Making art, like the whole concept of making art and showing it to other people, regardless of what the art is, is kind of embarrassing. It's like, it's a really embarrassing impulse. Like, Hey, look at me. Look at this thing that I did. Why is this the one that makes those people cringe? And especially interesting because like for me, I didn't know, I wasn't familiar with the history of the confessional label placing the, the art and the response to the art, um, in this, framework of of patriarchy, but also this framework of white supremacy, and that's something that you also talk about, you know, how white femininity is is something that has been a tool of white supremacy and continues to be, right? Like, putting all of this in as the context for this conversation about confessional poetry, I mean, I think these are the right questions to be asking.
1: If intimacy is the thing that you have a that's a, a relationship that other people don't share, what mm. is it in me that it's almost an obsession or a compulsion or, or, or a fetish or something, that I want to somehow share or make public intimacy? And I think that there are some really good sociopolitical reasons that I want to do that. And part of it has to do with exactly what you bring up about the difference between sentiment and sentimentality and has to do with like my feeling as a woman, as a fifth woman who like went into these institutions of marriage and motherhood and the experiences of marriage and motherhood. And these are the two most intimate relationships that I've had in my life, marriage and motherhood. You know, my project, if you want to call it a project from the beginning of like telling the truth or at least the truth of my experience of these most intimate parts of my life, marriage, motherhood, sex, sexuality, anger, the idea that like I shouldn't say these things felt like. a a kind of weaponized, like, be quiet, be quiet, little lady, like, you know, get into your yellow wallpaper room. And it all felt like a confinement to me.
0: I think that, and this is another thing that you talked about in in several of the the lectures, essays in this book is not just um, what a poem is, but that a poem is a thing that does something in the world, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. And,
0: like to what to what extent are you are you as the poet responsible for what it does in the world um to what extent like what is your responsibility of care and and that is a question that is really inextricably tied up with the the way in which our culture conceptualizes women and especially mothers right mm-hmm. like like there's a reason like mothers and wives, right? Like there's a reason why when Sally Mann is showing her children, right? That it is that people are um some people like like you and like me are are really taken by it and really there's something resonant and beautiful about it and there's something where and this is something that I think a lot of um poetry, not just confessional poetry, but poetry in general can you see an aspect of yourself in the work and that it makes you feel seen. It makes you feel a little less alone in the world. It's a really powerful experience Mm -hmm. of art that we can have. Right. But where other people look at Sally Mann, Sally Mann's work and just say, you are showing people things that shouldn't be shown. Right. But compare Mm -hmm. that to that really famous picture of Emmett Gowan's where he's literally showing his wife pissing on the floor I mean, there he does; he has gotten criticism for, the, for, for that, right? But not in the same way. There is this this way in which the revealing of the private for a man just isn't the same as it is for a woman, and particularly a wife or a mother, right? And that 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 is such a part and parcel of, of, I think, this conception of the mother as someone who's primarily there to protect the people uh, um, for whom she is supposed to be responsible rather than as an individual with her own needs and her own desires that you are kind of not supposed to exist as an individual when you're a mother. Right. And to a lesser extent, but still a very significant extent, that's also true of a wife. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I've always made poems and art about my quote-unquote real life or about my my life in order to feel real Um, and there's like a whole lot there and that has a lot to do with photography and my interest in photography it's my primary job as a mother is to protect my children and if the art hurts them
0: let me ask you something let me ask you something because this is this question I have for myself as well and I've never I've never come to a resolution. I don't expect that in the in the confines of this conversation, this this is something that either of us is going to come to any resolution or have a good answer for. But one of the questions you just asked is, how can you tell your story without including these things, right? Yeah. And the question for me is that I've been wrestling with forever, why why do I need to tell my story? Like what is that about? Like, on the one for one thing, like who gives a shit? But also, like, why do I even want to? You know, do you is this something for you at all?
1: I mean, that is the fundamental question of all time because it is. It, it, it,
2: um... Okay, I'm going to interrupt myself to address you directly, faithful listener, if you are still listening. And tell you a few things. So, first of all, this is Commonplace episode 111. At the top of the episode, you heard a message left by Mike Sakasagawa to me. And then you heard the beginning of a conversation between me and Mike. Uh, Mike is the podcast host and founder of a fantastic podcast called Keep the Channel Open. I w- I've been on his podcast. I will be on his podcast again to discuss the poetics of wrongness. And Mike will be on Commonplace again. We're going to do a feed drop um, of one of his incredible episodes that's going to come up in a few months. I recorded this conversation with Mike right before I left for a trip to San Francisco. And before I get to the audio of me giving this lecture, what we talk about when we talk about the confessional and what we should be talking about to a live audience. I want to share a story that happened uh, at the end of April um, that's very much related to this conversation that I'm having with Mike and the confessional lecture. So how do I tell this story? First of all, this story <laughs> acknowledges the existence of sex between consenting adults. And I'm going to speak somewhat euphemistically about the sex part, not because I think that women in their 50s should not speak directly and in detail about their sexual experiences. I think they should, and uh, I probably will in the future episodes, but it's not at the crux <laughs> of what this story is about. So when I was in Seattle for the AWP conference um, and was recording the episode with Saeed Jones that some of you have heard, I am on some dating apps and I accidentally matched with someone who we will just call Seattle. And I say accidentally because he thought that I lived in Seattle. Um, And so when I came back to New York, I texted him through the app and said like, hey, sorry, I live in New York and I have no plans to come back to Seattle. Thanks for matching, but you know, not interested. Anyway, we continued to text with each other a little bit. He was very interested in poetry. At a certain point, I told him that I was coming to San Francisco. D.A Powell, who's a close friend of mine, amazing, amazing poet, had invited me to read at Grace Cathedral. And I said yes, and I decided to do a silent retreat for a week, which I'd never done, at Spirit Rock, which is near San Francisco. And so I had these two days that I was going to arrive in San Francisco, record a conversation with a choreographer named Hope Moore, and you'll hear um, that episode also in a few months, and then read at Grace Cathedral, go to my silent retreat for a week, and then the last day that I was in San Francisco, go and see the production of Horizon stanzas, which was the dance by choreographer Hope Moore, which had been, which was inspired by Alice Notley's epic feminist poem, Descent of Alette, and then Fly Home. So Seattle guy says, oh, well, he would like to fly to San Francisco to meet me for a date. And I've never done anything like this before. And there was, it was very exciting. We were going to have this romantic adventure or at least a sexual adventure. And we did all the things that very responsible, uh, consenting, Adults do like STI testing and uh, disclosing and um, on my end, making sure that uh, he was who he said he was, you know, that this was going to be physically safe for me. And that we were on the same page and we were above board about why we were doing this and what we were interested in. You know, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. Like I'm single and I, I'm going to see what this is all about. You know, maybe this is what people call casual sex. I don't know. You know, I was interested in, in the whole adventure of it. So I fly out there And I record a conversation with Hope Moore, which was incredible. And then I meet Seattle guy and, um, we had an interesting evening together and an interesting next day together going to city lights bookstore together. I, uh, picked out a whole bunch of books for him to read and buy and, uh, there was a particular interlude that involved reading a Bernadette Mayer poem and some Ann Carson poetry. Also some things that he disclosed to me that he had not disclosed to me before, which were quite um, upsetting to me. After the, we'll call it sexy interlude that, uh, involved Bernadette Mayer, Ann Carson, Seattle guy and me, who was a menage a quatre or something like that. I went back to my room. I had about 30 minutes before I had to be at Grace Cathedral or maybe about an hour. And I wasn't quite sure what I was going to read. And I knew I had about 10 minutes um, that I could read and I had a poem that was like seven minutes and I needed to pick another one that was much shorter and I didn't know what to read. In any case, as sometimes happens to me, I had a few lines going through my mind that had occurred to me during the aforementioned sexy interlude. And so I just and I was I was quite upset and I wrote down the these lines just to kind of get them out of my mind. And suddenly I look up and it is 6.45. I'm supposed to be at Grace Cathedral at 7 p.m. And I haven't gotten dressed. I haven't picked what I'm going to read. What I have done is written the first poem I've written in... Over three years, and so I throw on my clothes and I go downstairs and I ask the front desk if they will print out this poem, and they print it out for me. and by now it's seven o'clock, the reading starts at seven thirty. I'm supposed to be there at seven. It's a ten minute walk from the hotel, and I decide, you know what? I'm going to read this poem out loud as I walk to Grace Cathedral. And if I get to Grace Cathedral and there's like a lot left of the poem, I'll know that the poem, which I have never read read out loud, I have no idea how long it takes to read. Um, I just wrote it, not even thinking, is this a good poem or not? I thought, okay, well, if I get there and there's a lot left to read, I'll know it's more than 10 minutes and I'll just pick something else from my book, or I'll just read the seven-minute poem. Okay. So I start walking and I'm I'm like marching at top speed up, 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 uphill in San Francisco, trying to get from the Union Square area to Grace Cathedral. and I'm walking, and I'm walking, and I'm reading this poem and i'm I'm you know, every once in a while i'm I'm like stopping for one second to make a line at it and then i I'm sweating, and you know, my makeup, which I've just like slapped on my face, is like all probably sweating and dripping off and I'm getting texts from Seattle guys saying like, holy shit, like there's this, this reading is intense. Like the, 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 you know, the venue, like Grace Cathedral, like this is wild. Like, I can't believe, you know? And so I realized like, okay, I knew he was going to go to the reading, but I realized he's already there. I'm late. I I, finally, it's like seven 15. I'm like, where the hell's Grace Cathedral? I ask somebody. They point up the hill even further. I go up the hill. Um, I think I see it. I'm like, oh, thank God, there's a security guard. And I say, oh, where's the entrance? Where's the entrance? And he says, the the the, the cathedral's closed. I'm like, how can this be? I'm look. I look at my phone, and somehow it says that grace cathedral is now 25 minutes away and i'm like well that can't be you know it's just somehow it's like my my new york phone is not understanding san francisco that's what i thought in the in the moment i look and it is saint mary's cathedral not grace cathedral and i am indeed now 25 minutes at least away from grace cathedral and it is like 7:20 I, I'm. I don't know whether to cry or lie down on the road. I have never been late to my to a reading of my own. I call an Uber while I'm waiting for the Uber. I hail a taxi. I jump in the taxi. I'm like, I, I'm late for a poetry reading. You know, please, like, do everything you can to drive very quickly. As I'm in this taxi, I'm like line editing the poem. I I get there. It's like seven thirty five. Seven thirty eight maybe. I like run up the stairs into this cathedral. I cannot believe I am in a cathedral. I mean, Grace Cathedral is unreal. And one of the other issues that I think is important to mention uh, in this story is that Seattle guy is white. Not just white, but like whiter than any man I've ever been with or, or maybe even known. I don't know. I mean, you just, I, I, I've never felt so Jewish in my life and and, and been so certain that his people and my people have never intermarried, intermixed since early, early human times. And that was sort of very interesting to me leading up to the sexual adventure the romantic interlude whatever we want to call it like what what was it what did it mean to be having this adventure with an extremely white extremely fit cis straight guy just you know straighter and whiter and cisser and Bitter than than anyone I really quite encountered in in such a manner. And uh, other coaster, you know, just really seemed like from a different planet um, than 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 I come from, or that I inhabit. So Judaism and being a Jew, not just Jewish, but a Jew was very much on my mind during the romantic interlude. And At this moment, and as as I walked into Grace Cathedral with my crazy poem, and I like rushed over, sat down, the reading began, I was the second reader. I had a lovely introduction by one of Doug's students and she talked about how much she loved my work and the honesty of it and the bravery of it and the kind of rough unfinishedness of it. And she particularly referred to a poem of mine from The Pedestrians called Pedestrian, which the poem that I had just written, it had a similar quality to that poem of mine. And I just knew like, here we go. Here we go. And I walked up to the altar, I guess it's called in a church. I don't know what it's called, wherever the microphone was on what was at that moment a stage, uh, without even my book, just with this poem with crazy notes all over it. And I read it. And um I felt powerful and Um, it was funny and it was about whiteness and it was about the tragedy of heterosexuality, uh, which is both a book and, um, uh, that I'm now reading, which is fabulous, but also in the moment uh, was, uh, my description for the experience that I was living and Seattle guy was in the audience. And so yes, this, issue of what is confessional, what is my involvement with the confessional, what are the consequences, what is at risk, the ways in which it is gendered, the connection between feminism and sex and the confessional between whiteness, white supremacy and the confessional. These these questions continue to live in me, both in my actions and in my writing and in my thinking and in my relationship to poetry. And I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry for writing the poem. I'm not sorry for reading it. I'm not sorry for reading it in public. I'm not sorry for reading it in front of Seattle Guy There was something mean and retributive about that. And I'm trying to think through, you know, I don't want to be a mean, retributive person. I was about to say I don't want to be an angry person. I am angry. I'm really, really angry. And there's a certain safety for me, which I have tried to explain to him in expressing my anger publicly that is not available to me as a woman alone in a hotel room with um, a very physically powerful man. He explained to me that he's never in his life felt uncomfortable in public. And I think this was a big shock to him. Um, For those of us who feel often or even constantly uncomfortable in public, This might seem like a really ridiculous um, sort of white male fragility complaint, but, you know, I think it's real, and I think it was a shock, and I think that I don't want to be the person who goes around doing mean things to people just because they deserve it. And at the same time, I wonder if that is what my poetry is about on some level. So here's the confessional lecture. Mike asks me, why is it important to tell our story? I don't have answers to any of these questions as usual, just more and more and more questions. But the thinking through of them for me is really what poetry and this podcast um, and maybe my life is really about. So thank you for listening. Here is the audio of the confessional lecture.
3: Today we'll hear what we talk about when we talk about the confessional and what we should be talking about, given January 28, 2016, in partnership with the University of Arizona Poetry Center.
2: As some of you know, this lecture is really, really hot off the presses. I finished it today, just in time. Uh, the working title is What We Talk About When We Talk About the Confessional and What We Should Be Talking About. And I'm going to start just with a little bit of context about how I came to write these lectures and where this lecture um, fits in with the re- the other two lectures that I've written. And uh, I think maybe it's appropriate in particular with this lecture because My context or introduction has, as you will very soon see, a rather confessional uh, flavor to it. In late January of 2013, I told my mother that I was going to publish my memoir called Mothers, despite the fact that she told me she did not want me to, and that if I did, terrible things would happen to her, to me, and to my children. A few hours after receiving my email and forwarding it to several friends with a note saying that I was breaking her heart, my mother, who was in Taiwan at the time, was rushed to the hospital. She suffered an aortic dissection and never regained consciousness after an emergency heart valve replacement surgery. For months after my mother's death, I organized memorials, cleaned out her apartment, managed her literary estate, and mourned her all while feeling that I'd killed her. That my actions, my writing, and my decision to publish my writing had in small or large ways caused her sudden death. I stopped writing. Perhaps I was in shock or afraid of my own writing, or perhaps I imagined that never writing again was penance. Two years after my mother's death, I began to write these lectures. I started reading and writing about two topics photography, and confessional poetry. When I completed drafts of these lectures, I realized that they were both about my mother's death, although neither of them mentioned her directly. Looking back, I see that I was trying to exculpate myself. I was searching for antecedents and justifications for my practice of writing accessible autobiographical poems and prose about my mental emotional state, my body, my lived experience, and for including in that writing real people—my mother, my children, my husband, my friends, other poets—who I named or otherwise identified with or without their consent. My work had always had a kind of photographic relationship to the real, to truth, to truth-telling, and has relied on the excitement and or discomfort of revealing too much. I was trying to align myself with artists and movements in order to find protection and permission. I ended up writing a third lecture about all the ways my writing had hurt others. I made a list of everything I'd ever written that had hurt someone, my most provocative and offensive lines and poems. I came to realize that none of these three lectures was working. I started over again and wrote three new lectures. The first is The Poetics of Wrongness, in which I define the poet's role as calling out her own and others' wrongness and subverting hierarchical power systems. The second is called A Very Large Charge, The Ethics of Say-Everything Poetry, in which I search for a code of ethics for writing about real people. Tonight's lecture is the third lecture that I've written, and it is about confessional poetry the origin and evolution of the term, the problems with it, the pleasures of it, and how a re-examination of confessional poetry might be useful in 2016. Part of the confusion around the term confessional is that it it originally referred to a few poets writing in a specific time period, but the term quickly began to be used to describe a mode, a style, a quality of poems, written by many poets across several decades. If that were not complicated enough, confessional became a derogatory epithet, inherently white supremacist, and later overtly misogynistic, and was used as a gatekeeping strategy. Maybe we should just retire the term. But to reject the term altogether is to overlook the extent to which contemporary poetry is profoundly influenced by the legacy of the of confessional writing, and the extent to which we, who are both drawn to and repelled by this legacy, are newly in need of a poetry that employs the elements of what is often called confessional. Like all literary movements or schools, confessional poetry contains unlikely bedfellows none of whom wanted to be called confessional, all of whom wrote in a range of styles and modes across their writing lives. Still, while rereading the work of the five poets most often associated with confessional poetry, Robert Lowell, W.D. Snodgrass, John Berryman, Anne Sexton, and Sylvia Plath, and the criticism of the period, I attempted a taxonomy of attributes. Poems that are called confessional rely heavily on sound and repetition use simple syntax, remark on the passage of time, and are less interested in condensation than most lyric poems. They are narrative, relatively accessible, and often include a mixture of verse and prose. They are often emotionally shrill, self-absorbed, hysterical, messy, and traffic in shame. They tend to be long, often written in series, have a strong awareness of audience, and are preoccupied with religion. Many confessional poems are written by non-Jews about Judaism or Jewish history and have a particular fascination with the Holocaust. Some so-called confessional poems contain most of these attributes, others very few. I'm not interested in developing a confessional or not litmus test, but for the term to mean anything at all, there have to be shared characteristics, and there are. Let's go back a minute. The term confessional as it relates to poetry was coined by the critic M.L. Rosenthal in Poetry as Confession, his 1959 review of Robert Lowell's book Life Studies. Here's a quote from the review. The use of poetry for the most naked kind of confession grows apace in our day. We are now far from the great romantics who spoke directly of their emotions but did not give the game away even to themselves. They found, instead, cosmic equations and symbols, transcendental reconciliations, in the course of which the poet lost his personal complaint in the music of universal forlornness. Eliot and Pound brought us into the forbidden realm, yet a certain indirection masks the poet's actual face. Lowell removes the mask. His speaker is unequivocally himself, and it is hard not to think of life studies as a series of personal confidences, rather shameful, that one is honor-bound not to reveal. So, poets had always written about feelings. This was not new. The Romantic poets had big feelings, but according to Rosenthal, the Romantic poet lost his personal complaint in the music of universal forlornness. The modernist poet was writing from an impartial distance about and from a self that was fragmented and ontologically unsure and employed a persona or a mask of the self. Poetry, as Eliot wrote, is not a turning loose of emotion, but an escape from personality. The emotion of art is impersonal. What came to be called confessional breaks from the lyric tradition of both the Romantics and the Modernists. Confessional poetry is personal poetry that stays personal rather than becoming universal and in which the speaker of the poem is unequivocally himself. I call this quality I-ness. And what happens when Lowell removes the mask and becomes unequivocally himself? About half the book, Rosenthal writes, is essentially a public discrediting of his father's manliness and character, as well as of the family and social milieu of his childhood. We hear the poet's psychological problems as an adult and spy, as Lowell, as, Ro, as Rosenthal calls them, grotesque glimpses into his marital life. So originally, confessional poetry was poetry in which, one, the speaker is himself, and two, the poet brings what should remain private or personal into the public sphere. Three, the poem's contents disrupts the social norms of its time. For example, the poem contains content that was or is considered grotesque, insane, gendered, impolite, subversive, overly sexual, suicidal, or shameful. And four, the poem feels dangerous in part because it causes the writer and or the reader shame. When Rosenthal wrote, Lowell seems to regard poetry as soul's therapy, he was remarking on something new in Lowell and in poetry. Lowell was disobeying his inherited Boston Brahmin mandate to be discreet and inconspicuous and was defying the tradition of modern poetry, which he had previously exemplified. Lowell was a practicing Catholic. He had converted from Episcopalianism and a diagnosed manic depressive who had received treatment in and out of mental institutions for most of his adult life. Perhaps Rosenthal, an avowed humanist who grew up speaking Yiddish in a religious Jewish home, was trying to understand the full weight of what it meant to Lowell to sully his family's reputation and undermine his straight, white, male, Protestant privilege by writing poetry in which he emasculated himself and revealed himself to be emotionally unstable, a lousy husband, a failed father, and a pretty unpleasant person. But the choice of the word confession to describe Lowell's poetry and of the phrase soul's therapy confusingly allied the Christian practice of confession with the secular practice of therapy and poetry. Confession, or the sacrament of reconciliation, requires one to examine one's conscience, confess one's sins to a priest, express contrition for these sins, and ask forgiveness. The priest may then suggest penance and will then absolve the confessor. The process of confession returns a person to a post-baptismal state of righteousness. Therapy, and I'm speaking of Freudian psychoanalysis, which was predominant in Lowell's time, is a process in which a patient works to bring unconscious material into consciousness in the context of a therapeutic relationship. Conflicts between the conscious and unconscious mind arise in response to repression, and this repressed material manifests as psych- as neurotic or psychotic behavior and mental disturbances such as anxiety and depression. On the surface, confession and therapy may seem similar. One speaks one's th- sins to become good again. One speaks one's story to stay sane and healthy. But the Freudian notion of illness or madness as being caused by repressed thoughts is antithetical to the Christian notion of thoughts as sinful. There are no good or bad sinful or godly thoughts in psychoanalysis. It is only the repression of thoughts, a kind of unthinking of thoughts, especially thoughts one thinks of as bad, that cause illness psychoanalysis aims for integration understanding wisdom and maturity confession aims for absolution and a return to grace or a state of innocence the conflation of the christian practice and therapy results in a great many contradictions and confusions as to what poetry as confession is when rosenthal writes it is hard not to think of life studies as a series of personal confidences rather shameful that one is honor-bound not to reveal What is the location of that shame? Is it in the nature of the secrets Lowell reveals, or in his use of the poem as a public space for private material? Is it the shameful content of a poem, or the expression of private content, that makes a poem confessional? And if it is the first, shameful according to whom? To God? To the state? To the mainstream? By this measure, any poem written in America in the 1950s or 60s that included homoerotic content should be considered confessional. But Allen Ginsberg is only sometimes considered confessional, and Frank O'Hara almost never. And what is the role of the reader? In Poetry as Confession, is the reader a psychoanalysis priest who offers absolution and provides a therapeutic context, or is the reader a voyeur witness intruding upon what should be a confidential exchange between poet and priest-therapist? These confusions matter. The poem in one case is a sign of health and in another a catalog of sins. The poem is either a site of communication between poet and other, or it is an intercepted, broken confidence. One thing that confession and therapy have in common is that both require the presence of another human being. In this way, Rosenthal's metaphor is apt and useful. Confessional poems are often addressed to someone, a priest, a therapist, a lover, a friend, a child, or the reader, in ways that break with traditional apostrophe in the lyric. In the lyric, apostrophe, which comes from the Greek word to turn away, meaning that the orator turns away to address an individual, is most often a trope of address to a dead, absent, inanimate other or self. Most confessional poems are narrative, which is to say, they describe a sequence of events told by a narrator. In confessional poems, the narrator or speaker is almost always the poet. Lyric poetry, on the other hand, doesn't usually tell a story about what happened, but is itself the event, the occasion. Narrative, like folktale, is how we explain ourselves to others and is therefore inherently a public enterprise. Lyrics, from the tradition of singing or anything that can be accompanied by the lyre, are concerned with the private and are how we explain ourselves to ourselves. In a lyric, the poet is a prophet or oracle, a voice overheard. In a confessional narrative poem, the poet most often speaks to a specific real person and thus breaks from the lyric notion that eloquence is heard, poetry is overheard. This is part of what gives confessional poetry a sense of realness and intimacy. It is also part of what can position the reader as a voyeur. Anne Sexton's poems are full of this kind of direct address. You, Dr. Martin, is the first poem in her book to bedlam and partway back and begins, You, Dr. Martin, walk from breakfast to madness. Whereas Wallace Stevens was interested in the imagination's ability to press back against the pressure of reality, Sexton's poems often work to press her reality, her voice, her will, her physical female presence, against a male interlocutor who is limiting or suppressing her. The power of Sexton's poems comes as much or more from their direct address and the discomfort of the engendered by such an address than from her taboo too personal content or I-ness. In her long poem, The Double Image, Sexton directly addresses her daughter, Joyce, who was four years old at the time. Sexton describes intense guilt around her separations from Joyce, which were caused by Sexton's suicide attempts and hospitalizations. Sexton explores the tangled relationship between herself and Joyce and between Sexton and her own mother, with whom she went to live like an angry guest, like a partly mended thing, an outgrown child. The double image reveals that Sexton's mother never forgave Sexton for attempting suicide and accused her daughter of giving her cancer. In the poem, Sexton and her mother have their portraits painted and hung on opposite walls. Sexton describes her mother's portrait as, my mocking mirror, my overthrown love, my first image. The long poem ends with Sexton admitting, I didn't want a boy. Only a girl, a small milky mouse of a girl, already loved, already loud in the house of herself. We named you Joy. I, who was never quite sure about being a girl, needed another life, another image to remind me. And this was my worst guilt. You could not cure nor soothe it. I made you to find me. Personal confidences and private details abound in this poem and the confession at the end that Sexton made her daughter to find herself, to save herself, is a brave and horrible thing to say to a child and also one that feels to my mind deeply common and true even when one is not suicidal or profoundly disturbed the guilt, rage, jealousy, joy, love, pleasure of the cracked mirror of mother-daughterhood is both taboo and archetypal. Sexton wrote the double image while studying with John Holmes, her first workshop teacher. Holmes was dismayed and angry when Sexton read him the poem and told her not to publish it. Sexton's poem, For John, who begs me not to inquire further, is Sexton's response to Holmes, who had characterized Sexton as a guilty, suicidal, deranged, excessive spectacle to Sexton directly and to her friends and peers. In a letter to Sexton's friend Maxine Kuhman, Holmes wrote... Sexton writes so absolutely selfishly of herself to bear and shock and confess. Her motives are wrong artistically, and finally the self-preoccupation comes to be simply damn boring. For John, who begs me not to inquire further, is an ars poetica for Sexton's own poems and for confessional poems, as well as a straightforward attempt to save face and save self. The title refers to the epigraph of To Bedlam and Part Way Back, which which is a quote from a letter in, 19, in 1815 from Schopenhauer to Goethe. Here's the epigraph. It is the courage to make a clean breast of it in the face of every question that makes the philosopher. He must be like Sophocles' Oedipus, who seeking enlightenment concerning his terrible fate pursues his indefatigable inquiry, even when he divines that appalling horror awaits him in the answer. But most of us carry in our heart the Jocasta who begs Oedipus for God's sake not to inquire further. Confessional poetry is not just poetry that is personal. It is not just poetry about taboo subjects. Confessional poetry contains a quality of potential self-immolation that is best understood by imagining this moment when Oedipus asks Jocasta for the truth. Jocasta, who knows by this time what has happened, tries to put Oedipus off when he asks her who he is. Someone who ignores all this bears life more easily. Jocasta tells him, oh, you unhappy man, may you never find out who you really are. As Schopenhauer knows and as Sexton explains to Holmes, the poet and philosopher have both Oedipus and Jocasta within. But the true philosopher-poet continues to seek enlightenment, no matter how horrible and despite the forces, defenses, and psychoanalytic terms that beg our inner Oedipus to please, please stop asking. Whether it is the search for truth despite the potential horror that truth may bring, or the shame of admitting one's sinfulness, or the sin of breaking a confidence, confessional poetry is marked by a sense of urgency and risk to the poet, to the people mentioned in the poem, and to the poet's readers. For the eyeing of my scars, there is a charge. For the hearing of my heart, it really goes. And there is a charge a very large charge for a word or a touch or a bit of blood writes sylvia plath in her poem lady lazarus plath means that there is both an excitement and a cost for this kind of poem which often does feel like the eyeing of the poet's scars in plath's case the scars often aren't even scars yet the wounds are too fresh Reading Plath sometimes feels like watching someone intentionally cut herself. The experience is exciting, horrifying, compelling, damaging, and dangerous. Looking at these poems and poets, we must try to imagine what it meant to be writing in the tranquilized 50s, a time of intense repression when societal expectations about sex and gender were even more rigid than they'd been in the 1920s. We must try to imagine what it felt like in 1960 to imagine, to admit you'd had an abortion or to speak back to the John Holmeses of the world. What may have begun as soul's therapy, talking about the self in order to create a more integrated self, began to be seen as a kind of witness to a shared moment of cultural breakdown, even though the phrase poetry as witness had not yet come into common use. When Lowell wrote my mind's not right, or I hear my ill spirit sob in each blood cell as if my hand were at its throat, I myself am hell, nobody's here, or I keep no rank or station, cured, I am frizzled, stale, and small. He had a lot to lose. But at the same time, it was his straight, white, Mayflower male privilege that enabled him to risk this kind of writing and made his trespass noteworthy. For example, when Rosenthal wrote his review of Lowell, he made no mention of Ginsburg's Howell, also about breakdown, which had violated social norms to such an extent that the book had provoked an obscenity trial. It was easy to dismiss Ginsberg's counterculture poetics as part and parcel of his status as a degenerate homosexual Jew, and I think if Lowell, heir apparent of modern poetry, had not done it first, it would have been easy to dismiss Sexton and Plath as madwomen thrusting, as Snodgrass said of Sexton, her needy, vulnerable, vexed female voice onto the poetry scene. This is a necessary slight digression. For a long time I puzzled over the whiteness of confessional poetry and to a lesser extent the straightness. Why, I wondered, was Plath called confessional but not Gwendolyn Brooks? Why is Sharon Olds confessional but not Lucille Clifton? Why Lowell but not Ginsburg? When black poets write with Iness ness about personal private content, they are mostly called black poets, if and when critics actually take their work seriously enough to write about them. When LGBTQ poets write urgent, silence equals death, explicitly sexual bodily poems, they are called queer poets. The confessional label seems restricted to poets with mainstream privilege. I once asked the poet Shane McRae if he considered himself a confessional poet. He'd written that Plath was his earliest, most important influence, and I saw what I consider to be strong confessional impulses in his work. McRae responded to me via email. I do think that it is in some ways impossible for a writer of color to be a confessional writer, or at least to be thought of as a confessional writer. Writers of color absolutely can write autobiographically, but I don't know that that is confessional. The confessional is the admitting of a step, or a fall, away from a state of grace. It is a report of grace momentarily destabilized. But the assumption behind it is that grace is the default position. For writers of color, it is not assumed that grace is our default position. We are always tainted by the sin of being oppressed. In this way, the confessional designation is inherently a white supremacist construction. It relies upon the notion that only white people occupy a state of grace from which to fall. How is it then that confessional poetry quickly became associated predominantly with women? Lowell wrote into a feminized space, but almost immediately the poems of Sexton and Plath upstaged and outshone him and the other confessional male poets. Sexton and Plath garnered a passionate following among readers and inspired significant anxiety among critics. In the introduction to her anthology, poems from the women's movement, Honor Moore writes... When Sylvia Plath's Ariel was published in the United States in 1966, American women noticed. Not only women who ordinarily read poems, but housewives and mothers whose ambitions had awakened when they read Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique a few years earlier. Plath was identified with the poet's M.L. Rosenthal-dubbed confessional, but that label obscured the significance of her posthumous volume. Here was a woman, superbly trained in her craft, whose final poems uncompromisingly charted female rage, ambivalence, and grief in a voice with which many women identified. Within a few years, many of the things Rosenthal had noted in Lowell, intense taboo breaking about the predicament and horror of the lost self, in which an unmasked poet brought private and personal concerns into the public realm, became a mode or a style or maybe a volume of poetry that was associated almost entirely with Plath and Sexton and with poets of the women's movement." Although contemporary critics mostly did not deem the poets like Audre Lorde, Adrienne Rich, Muriel Rookheiser, Sonia Sanchez, Denise Levertov, Maxine Kumin, Anne Waldman, Lucille Clifton, Diane de Prima, June Jordan, Carolyn Kaiser, Marilyn Hacker, and Molly Peacock confessional, what we now think of as confessional often comes from the qualities we associate with the work of these poets. The lyric was supposed to be a private, universal, impersonal, overheard address. But as Alicia Ostriker points out, privacy's deprivations belonged primarily to women and its autonomy to men. And I would actually say straight men. The the breakdown of privacy by female and male writers in the 1960s had the effect of destabilizing the privilege of white heterosexual men for whom the lyric may have appeared to investigate universal truths, but which ignored or devalued what Carolyn Kaiser called merely the private lives of one half of humanity." The high value placed on decorum, modesty, and impersonality was a way of maintaining the status quo of the straight, white, male plutocracy. In her essay, My Name is Darkness, Sandra Gilbert writes, The self-defining confessional genre with its persistent assertions of identity and its emphasis on the central myth of the self may be distinctively a female poetic mode. Gilbert explains that the male poet may manage to be at once private and public, lyrical and rhetorical, because the personal crisis of the male poet is felt to be the symbolic embodiment of the national and cultural crisis. This ability to be simultaneously private and public, particular and universal, was not available to women who had seen themselves only as muses and as the subjects of poems rather than the creators of self and art. One of the primary characteristics of confessional poetry, private content, reliance on lived experience, eyeness, direct address, urgency, and a sense of personal risk, all of these were projected onto the poems from the women's movement so that it made sense that confessional poetry began to be seen as a quality of a poem, formal or free verse, that was personal, political, urgent, risky, accessible, and subversive. But to conflate the confessional with a stylistically diverse poetry in which women speak truth to power despite enormous pressure is to ignore the important fact that the poem poets of the women's movement were not confessing. Confession is the wrong word. These poets were not saying bless me father for i have sinned. They were not asking for forgiveness. Listen. I am not wrong. Wrong is not my name. My name is my own, my own, my own, and I can't tell you who the hell set things up like this, but I can tell you that from now on, my resistance, my simple and daily and nightly self-determination may very well cost you your life. June Jordan. Or... Whoever despises the clitoris despises the penis. Whoever despises the penis despises the cunt. Whoever despises the cunt despises the life of the child. Who will speak these days, if not I, if not you? Muriel Rukeyser. And when we speak, we are afraid. Our words will not be heard nor welcomed. And when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak remembering we were never meant to survive. Audrey Lord. But because a woman is acceptable if she is weak, acceptable if she is a victim, acceptable also if she is an angry victim, shrew, witch, a woman's sorrow is acceptable. A deodorized, sanitized, sterilized, antiperspirant, grinning, efficient woman is certainly acceptable But who can tolerate the power of a woman close to a child, riding our tides into the sand dunes of the public spaces? Alicia Ostriker? Come, celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Lucille Clifton I draw your attention to the conflation of confessional poetry and the women's movement for several reasons. First of all, it was the energy and passion of the women's movement and the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War War protests that gave Sexton, Plath, Ginsburg, Amiri Baraka, Gwendolyn Brooks, Adrian Rich, and poetry itself a feeling of urgency. What interest there is today in confessional poetry comes largely from its eventual connection with social activism, counterculture, and protest. People of every age are drawn to such energy, as are poets and poetry readers, who often seek out poetry because they feel marginalized, silenced, disenfranchised, and alienated. Many poets in my generation found Sexton and Plath on our mother's shelves or in used bookstores. These poems woke us up, disturbed and delighted us. The poems felt both forgiven and forbidden and instructional, like our parents' joy of sex, or our mothers' our bodies ourselves. These were the poems that made us want to write, We wore these poems like a badge of honor until we went to college, where most English departments still exalted Shakespeare, Chaucer, Milton, Stevens, Eliot, and Pound, and left only a few minutes each semester for H.D., Marianne Moore, and Elizabeth Bishop. We sewed these confessional poems into the inner linings of our minds and went to graduate school where we were told that these were not serious poems and not written by serious poets. Some of us had loved the realness of these poems, but were taught that real poems should not be shrill, direct, political. Real poems, we were told, should not be about or for anything. Many poets of my generation came to poetry because of Plath, Sexton, Rich, Old, Clifton, Maya Angelou, Jordan, Ginsburg, but our beloved poets were considered important only in women's studies, African American studies, queer studies departments, if our universities even had such departments but poets who had fought to bring the personal into the private sphere became our private pleasures, while Harold Bloom, Marjorie Perloff, and Helen Vendler said poetry was not big enough or flexible enough to include these people. Poetry only had room for Emily Dickinson, Wallace Stevens, John Ashbery, Frank O'Hara, Sylvia Plath, and only when she was being very, very mythic. Many of us loved these poets too but had not imagined that one should love poets monogamously, stingily, exclusively. My aim is not to convince you to love confessional poetry, but only to say that your feelings about it are likely influenced by the intensely misogynistic, homophobic, and racist critical response to the original confessional poets, especially Sexton and Plath. From a review of Sexton. Never has there been so much interest in reading and writing poetry, and never have publishers spent so much money publishing it with almost total disregard for quality. A review of Plath. Many an uneasy husband notes his wife's eyes widen and become glaucus, almost erotic, at the mention of Plath's name. What is the magnetic pull, the heady vertigo of this particular poet and her suicide? The love she inspires has a necrophiliac ardor. Many of her admirers, like James Dean's fans, react more to the romantic agony inherent in the myth than to the art itself. Another review of Plath. Sylvia Plath was a sick woman who made art of her sickness. Some young people, having limited experience, need literature to help them feel bad, and they will celebrate Plath for a while. Another review of Sexton. Who will buy this book? I think from hearing them speak at poetry readings and in poetry workshops, it is primarily young girls and women who admire Sexton for all the wrong reasons, making her a martyr to art and feminism, who seem out of their own needs to identify with her pathological self-loathing and to romanticize it into heroism. It has very little to do with poetry and it does neither poetry nor Anne Sexton a service. Helen Vendler on Sexton. The relentless centrality of the I, almost always indoors, alone, contemplating its own anguish, even if sometimes in farcical terms, is finally exasperating. From the beginning, the term confessional inspired concern, concern for Lowell's soul, for the feelings of those he exposed, for his mental health, for the effect of this kind of poetry on its readers and the genre itself. This anxiety reached a fevered pitch during the backlash against the women's movement and inspired a critical panic over what confessionalism would do to poetry. This alarm can only be understood in the context of the latent or blatant misogyny of critics whose condemnation of the confessional serves to defend the heteropatriarchy. The fear of powerful women and the need to contain and control or extinguish female power is older than marriage or monotheism, which is to say, it is as old as the patriarchy. Concern about and for women readers is as old as the moment women first learned to read, and certainly predates the particular anxiety about and for Plath and Sexton's readers. During the Victorian era, medical authorities were concerned that women who engaged in excessive and unsupervised reading of popular fiction would experience early menstruation, painful menzies, infertility, as well as nervousness, insanity, and even premature death. Women poets and novelists were outselling men when Nathaniel Hawthorne made his remark about the mob of scribbling women who were ruining literature. The concern for the common, i.e. female reader, for the husbands of Plath's readers, for academia, for more serious male writers, and for poetry, as if confessional poets were infecting the genre with a terminal illness, takes hold at the same time that an extraordinary tide of female poets entered the scene. Sadly, this kind of critical assessment continues apace in our day from a 2010 review of Sharon Olds. Stylistically invariant since 1980, Olds writes about the female body in a deterministic, shamanistic medieval manner. Infantilization packaged in pseudo-confession is her specialty. Her poetry defines feminism turned upon itself chewing up its own hot and bothered cadaver exposed since the 1970s. Female poets in workshops around the country idolize her, collaborate in the masochism, because they say she has freed them to talk about taboo subjects. She empowered them, has given confessionalism such a bad name it can't possibly recover. Or one of my favorite reviews of my own books on Goodreads, Zucker's voice has force, and some of these poems are vivid in their emotional violence and disjointed verse. A lot of it, however, feels confessional in the worst sense of the word, rote, self-absorbed, hysterical, and lyrically sloppy. The author's high-strung personality becomes numbing after a while. It's like being verbally assaulted at top speed for an hour straight. I think it is not a coincidence that more abstract, theory-based practices like language poetry and conceptual and avant-garde movements gained prominence at the same time that critics were wringing their hands over these scribbling or shrieking women. In questioning the nature of truth, sincerity, and authorship, language poetry temporarily subsumed the I. Poems were spoken again into the void, just when confessional poetry, misnomer that it was, and autobiographically transparent poetry by women and poets of color and queer writers became popular. Beginning in the 80s and 90s, poets who wanted to be taken seriously but also wanted to include narrative and emotional content used elliptical strategies to tell the truth but tell it slant. Stephen Burt, who coined the term elliptical, explains that poets like Emily Dickinson, John Berryman, John Ashbery, Susan Wheeler, C.D. Wright, Claudia Rankine, and others, quote, try to manifest a person who speaks the poem and reflects the poet while using all the verbal gizmos developed over the last few decades to undermine the coherence of speaking selves, close quote. Although the work of many so-called elliptical poets had real political force and power behind it, the trickle-down effect was that MFA students and others studying and reading this work began to use I in a low-stakes or no-stakes way. Many of these poems were accessible and transparent like confessional poetry and had the narrative chattiness of New York school poems, but these poems were so allergic to sincerity and sentimentality that they hardly ever strayed from an apolitical, apathetic, flat-affect style. David Trinidad calls these poems twists and turns of nothing. They are poems addressed to no one, about no one, in which nothing is at stake. Many of the things that compelled Lowell, Sexton, and Plath, mental illness, surveillance, imperialism, war, family, violence, have followed us into the 21st century. And the poets I care about are still writing about these things The poets I care about are also writing about the systematic institutional violence against and discrimination of people of color, LGBTQ people, undocumented immigrants, poor people, and people with disabilities as well as about the prison industrial system and the destruction of the environment. Who decides what one can or should write about? Who gets to write from the eye? Who has the right to speak? How can I name themselves as specifically and honestly as possible in a way that does not make a you that is othered in racist, homophobic, or oppressive ways? The question of who gets to say what and in what way is central to most poets writing today. Issues around permission and taxonomies, as well as how one is perceived if one writes out of or against lived experience underlie our conversations about what poems should look like or sound like, what poems are for, who poems are for, and the relationship between poetry, identity, and politics, which is, I think, our most urgent American conversation. Over the years, students have asked me, Can I write about my ex-boyfriend? Can I write about being from the South? Can I write about my difficult feelings about my mother, my brother, sex, depression, coming out, blackness, my Asian ancestry, my father's death, gun violence, race, the Middle Passage, rape? Students ask if they can write about things that have or have not happened to them, that for one reason or another they are afraid to write about. Of course, I always say. And students bring me these poems and hold them out in a shaky hand. I've never written about this before, or I'm not sure this is even a poem, they often say. Students come to me because I've written about the things that scare me most and have asked them to do the same. I've written about myself and my family, my body, my feelings in overtly autobiographical ways. Until recently, this had not been very difficult for me. As a Jew I was taught that only actions are sinful, never thoughts, and I come from a long line of truth-telling wordsmiths and provocateurs, Lenny Bruce, Allen Ginsberg, Woody Allen, Philip Roth, Bob Dylan, Sasha Baron Cohen. Art was always associated for me with shock rather than comfort, and I always felt it was more important to say what needed to be said than to make something beautiful. For a long time, being called confessional did not offend me. I did not at first understand the extent to which being called confessional depends upon my white privilege, and I did not mind being called a woman poet or even a mommy poet, because I'm comfortable with the way my poetry arises out of my female experience. But writing confessionally does have costs. It has its charge. There is pressure to write confessionally, because this is the kind of writing that brought many of us to poetry, and we know how pleasurable it can be for the audience. Some of us want to write for and to a less rarefied audience, and transparent, autobiographical, socially-oriented poetry appeals to a more general audience. On the other hand, there is pressur- pressure to eschew directness and narrative, to explore or embrace the kind of difficulty and indirection that we've been taught distinguishes poetry from, and prose from serious writing and serious writing from populist writing. It is a mistake to think that M.L. Rosenthal's Poetry as Confession review described a school or movement but I do think Rosenfall absolutely noticed a moment in the history of American poetry in which poets started to sound different, started to use poems differently, started to want something different from poems. What if, though? Instead of spotlighting the publication of Life Studies as the pivotal moment, Rosenthal, or someone else, had chosen October 7th, 1955, the date Ginsburg read Howell aloud for the first time. Michael McClure, present at that San Francisco reading, described it like this. Ginsburg read on to the end of the poem, which left us standing in wonder or cheering and wondering, but knowing at the deepest level that a barrier had been broken, that a human voice and body had been hurled against the harsh wall of America. I don't know what word Rosenthal would have used to describe Ginsburg's barrier-breaking poem, but I doubt he would have used confession. If Rosenthal had asked me, even though I wasn't born yet, I would have suggested disobedience even though Alice Notley hadn't written the Poetics of Disobedience yet. Ginsburg brought taboo, personal, sexual content into the public realm. Ginsburg was unmistakably, unequivocally, irrepressibly himself in his poems. His poems are spoken to real people, to God, to the state, to me. And though at times they are deranged, they are not ashamed. They do not ask for forgiveness. I don't know if poetry or the world would have been any different if I were now writing about a movement or a moment called disobedient poetry rather than confessional poetry. But in my fantasy of this alternate history, Alice Notley, Anne Carson, C.D. Wright, Bernadette Mayer, Claudia Rankin, D.A. Powell, Sharon Old, June Jordan, Adrian Rich, Eileen Miles, Morgan Parker, Denez Smith, Ariel Greenberg, Elena Kalatiak-Davis, Ross Gay, and so many others are in it. No one wastes time accusing these poets of narcissism, hysteria, directness, accessibility, or for their difficulty, because these poems run on the engine of risk, which is different from the engine of shame. In the end of her book, End of the Sentimental Journey, Sarah Vap writes, I am against being against the sentimental. This helps me. I cannot say that I am for the confessional. What I can say is that I am against being against the confessional. To be against the confessional is to be against writing about women and women's bodies, people of color and the bodies of people of color. Queerness, trans bodies, differently abled bodies, individuality, oppression, perversity, diversity, class, the domestic, the non-normative, the personal, the political, the specific, the urgent, the spiritual, the banal, the direct, the relational, the screamed, the whispered. To be against the confessional is to be against coming out against emphatically bringing the unwanted and repressed and hated and oppressed into public view, into the poem. Poetry, wrote Audre Lord is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. Alice Notley wrote, staying alert to all the ways one is coerced into denying experience, sense, and reason is a huge task. I am not advocating for any one kind of poetry. I want neither a prohibition of lived experience nor a tyranny of lived experience. I want a poetry to lead us into less binary ways of thinking and living and writing and reading. I want a poetry that is Catholic only in its lowercase sense, liberal, diverse, inclusive, and all-embracing. Thank you.
3: That was Rachel Zucker giving her talk, What We Talk About When We Talk About the Confessional and What We Should Be Talking About. Zucker's book, based on her BWLS lectures, The Poetics of Wrongness, is available at www.wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations.
1: You know, why do I need to write about my own life? Why do I need to tell my story? Well, first of all, I'm not sure I always will need to, but I think I have needed to in order to feel real. Yeah. And making art was a way, making autobiographical art was was a really important, what, was, what I think was like critical to my sanity. Yeah.
2: this has been episode 111 of commonplace many many thanks to everyone at wave books especially heidi broadhead and charlie wright to ellen welker and everyone involved in the bagley wright lecture series many thanks to christine larusso isaac ginsburg miller v conidy mike sakasagawa maybe even Seattle guy. (laughs) And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who came to Grace Cathedral to hear me read. Thank you to all of you who support Commonplace financially or emotionally by sending me emails and messages on social media of encouragement. And thank you for listening. Take care and be well.
1: Yes to everything you're saying, and we have to. Oh God, almost tripped. tripped. Um, And we have to end this conversation so that I can be a good mom and watch Judah play soccer. (laughs) (laughs) How's that for a real wrapping up?
0: I don't know if there is going to ever be a wrapping, a real wrapping up conversation. And honestly, I have no idea how you could possibly. Edit this down to be a useful bumper for your for <laughs> your, your episode. <laughs> Good
1: luck. Me either.